And for those of you who are regulars, it's uh, something that we've hit on this psalm a bit, but we're going to do something a little bit different. Mark that and turn also to the what this psalm is actually based on, and that is David's sin. Second Samuel 12 gives us the story. And what's important to mention here is I, we've heard, all heard it a time or two that pastors fall, leaders fall, they make mistakes, you know. They can continue in the ministry, this and that and the other. And, and that's true. You know, people are forgiven. People are restored. And that's a very important truth. But sometimes we forget that with every sin there's a stinger. There's a lingering effect. There's a sowing of the sin, but then there's the reaping of that sin. God doesn't always temper the harvest. And this is a good a story for us. Now, com- I don't think it's a fair comparison to compare the fall- moral failures of pastors to-, to King David. David was a king. He was not a priest. There's a difference. You know, if there's a moral failure, I think the mo- in-, in the pulpit ministry, then then there's a price to pay and that is you're removed and um, I like Spurgeon's take on this you know uh, when can a man be restored to office if they fail and they fall when their repentance is more notorious than their sin I think that's a good judge but what we've seen in, at least in the western church is that you know all their at best it's a slap on the hands and you know maybe a month off and take a sabbatical and then they're back in the pulpit you know this is a dropping the high level of integrity that the office calls for. We wouldn't really have so many divisions and strife and brokenness in the church if just church discipline was applied as it should be. And this is not uh, something that's real popular to hear. I mean, we're living in the day and age. We're in the end times, right? They'll heap to themselves people with itching ears. Well, that's a little too radical. Where's grace? Oh, there's grace all over the place. See, this is the thing. Is God any different in the Old Testament than the New Testament? Is he not the same yesterday, today, and forever? So here's a great picture of the love and the mercy of God through David's life. This is so powerful. And it also points out the truths that I've mentioned about sowing and reaping. So in chapter 12 of 2 Samuel, let's just read through the text and let it speak clearly. Then the Lord sent Nathan to David, and he came to him and said, There were two men in one city, and one rich and the other poor. And the rich man had exceedingly many flocks and herds. But the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, which he had brought and nourished it. And it grew up together with him and with his children, and it ate his own food and drank from his own cup, lay in his bosom, and it was like a daughter to him. And a traveler came to a rich man who refused to take from his own flock and from his own herd and to prepare one for, for the wayfaring man who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for uh, for the man who had come to him. So... David's anger was greatly aroused against the man. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, that man who has done this shall surely die. 
he shall restore fourfold for the lamb, because he did this thing, and because he had no pity. Then David, Nathan said to David, You're the man. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your keeping and gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if it had been too little, I would also have given you much more. Why have you despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? You've killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword. You've taken his wife to be your wife and you've killed him with the sword of the people of Ammon. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up adversity against you from your own house. I will take the wives from before your eyes and give them to your neighbor. You shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. For you did this secretly, but I will do this thing before all of Israel, before the sun. And so David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord has also put away your sin. You shall not die. However, because you did this deed, or by this deed you have given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also who is born to you shall surely die. Then Nathan departed to his house. This is the story, and this is the backdrop of Psalm 51. And before we go to Psalm 51, because that's what we're doing, we're taking the Psalms, uh, finishing that series, beginning, picking up back here in Psalm 51. But let's look at what, uh, how Nathan presents this parable. And, and, and what I want to point out, just it's pretty obvious laying here on the text in verse 4, uh, the traveler came to the rich man. And this is what happens to us. These little travelers come. They are the temptations. They are suggestions from the devil. And the devils had been working on David. He no longer went out to war. He was, you know, sort of entering into his, you know, latter years. About halfway through his administration, probably around fifty. You know, things were pretty well established. He had great respect and rapport. He was, everything was in order. God had so blessed him. And then this occurrence with Bathsheba. He gave in to this traveler. And the Lord, look, look what God had done for him. He had anointed him in verse 7. He had delivered him. He gave him everything he'd ever asked for. And yet, in David's flesh, he was despising the commandment of the Lord to the point of adultery and murder. We're not talking low-level sins here. These are, these are sins that there was no sacrifice in the Old Testament that would cover adultery. What was? Does anybody remember what the penalty for, of that was? Stone. Stone. And so that tells us something, and I've mentioned this previously. The biggest thing, one of the biggest things things to know about God that he values quite highly is loyalty. He has loyal love for his, us, and we'll see that tonight in this psalm. He expects us to have loyal love to him, and so when we sort of turn our back on him, we're despising him. You know, I think that, that this is 
a part of the fear of the Lord is understand our fallenness and that we have this high, and it's, it, it's just the deception of the flesh. We have this high value of ourselves that, we're, well, we would never do anything like that. And, and this is something we have to erase from our conviction. We are capable, any one of us on this planet, are capable of the most heinous crime you could ever think of. And as it's been said, except for the grace of God, there go I. We are fallen. We, are, we have a wicked, fallen heart. And this is what is pointed out in Psalm 51. But you have to understand that if you don't come to grips with the, the dark side of your nature, you're never going to appreciate the grace and the forgiveness and the rest uh, renewal and the restoration that you can have when you do fall. And so uh, we have to understand that when we disobey and we sin against the Lord, it's actually despising Him. And that's far that, and be that far from any one of us to despise the commandment and the person of the Lord. And so we have this fallback position. Well, you know, the Lord forgave David. He, he'll forgive me. Yeah, forgiveness is, is, is available in abundance. But look at the price that he paid. The last 20 years of his administration was filled with exactly this, adversity in his own house. Rape, incestuous rape. His son murdering another son. And then one of his sons seeking to usurp the throne. And then laying with his wives in front of all of Israel. And then, you know, right out of the gate, as it was the word of the Lord in verse 14, as you said, you know, the death of the child. This was painful. You know, God had forgiven. And look at, look at you know, the verse there. David immediately owns it. And this is the beginning of Psalm 51 because he hadn't written any psalms during this whole time. So this whole, this thing probably went on for close to a year before Nathan came to deal with it. Obviously, she got pregnant, and she had the baby. And, and then afterwards, in the process of that time, um, Uriah has been put to death through the Ammonites and that war that was going on. But let's go to Psalm 51 now and look at the entire list here. Now, I've used this psalm to connect it, as you know, with 1 John 1, 9. And that's very important because we we understand most of us have that memorized because we kind of need it in our life. <laughs> you know, if if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so if you break that verse down, you understand that when we confess our sins, that that sin is immediately forgiven. It's instantaneous. God doesn't Give us a time period. Oh, when, after a couple of days, I'll forgive you. It's instantaneous. The thief on the cross is a good example, right? Remember me when you come into paradise. You know, remember me when, you're, when you come into your kingdom. Today, you'll be with me in paradise. When he looked to the Lord, that was sufficient. It was instantaneous. Here, as soon as David owned it and had confessed it, Yahweh has put away your sins. But 
the rest of that verse talks about and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is the problem we have because when guilt is in our minds and in our spirits because of sin, well, we don't need to continue to ask God to forgive us. You ever had that issue? You know, asking God several times to forgive you for the same thing. And it's kind of like over and over again. It goes through your mind. The issue isn't forgiveness anymore. You've already asked for that, right? The issue is cleansing. You need to be washed. You need to be cleansed. And this is what this psalm is all about. It's about restoration. It's about the act of forgiveness of, and what God does for us. You, you and I are clean through the word. So when you have this guilt-ridden mind because you've done something, you've crossed the line, you've, you've despised the commandment of the Lord, you confess it, you're forgiven, but now you need to be washed in the word to, to remove that guilt conscience and regenerate your mind and your spirit from the damage that it's caused in crossing the line. So let's break this psalm down here as we look through. Well, first of all, in verse, the first verses right out of the gate here, uh, we realize that it's based upon the nature and character of God. All forgiveness is based upon the nature and character of God. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions, and my sin is always before me against you, and you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. You may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. So we see in the first four verses here that God's for, uh, forgiveness is based in his mercy. Have mercy upon me. Hone is just favor. Look with, with loving intent towards me. But then the loving kindness, according to your loving kindness, that's the covenant love. That's the same word that's used in Exodus when he chose Israel out of Egypt. You know, my love for you, my hesed, my loyal love for you. Loving kindness. David uses this word all through the Psalms, and we should. And this is really what God asked from you and from me. Just love me with the same type of love that I love you. Be loyal. And this, he says, tender mercies there. Now that's, that's just talking about, that's compassion. That's really what's being inferred there. It's a deep consideration. And so, so, so what you gather from this is David is taking his sin very seriously. He understands he's been carrying this guilt for a while, and it's plagued him. I think Psalm 32 uh, has uh, some expressions of his guilt and all what was going on physically, it was physically affecting him. But he says in verse 1 there, uh, uh, speaking of this forgiveness, blot out my iniquity or my transgressions. So literally it's erase. Now that's kind of what God does, right? You know, as far as the east is from the west, he drops our sins in the sea of forgetfulness. That's I mean, that's sort of the idea there, right? Blot it out, erase. But 
that's the problem. God erases it. There's no more record of it in his mind, in his heart, but the guilt lingers. And it does, the, the damage has been done to our psyche. And that's what needs to, there's where we need the help. And so he says in verse 2, wash me. So he, not only, so it's blot out, erase, but remove the stain. Now we're starting, to, we're starting to work on the part of the damage that's been done. And it starts by washing. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me. So kabase, uh, remove the stain, and tahar, make me ceremonially clean. So, so as you understand the Old Testament sacrifices, you're, to come into the tabernacle is to come into sacred space. That's where Yahweh, that's where the Shekinah rested. All the sacrifices and the rituals were, were there to make the people ceremonially clean as they entered into sacred space so that they wouldn't die. You know, there's just something about fallen nature and God's nature. They, they, they cannot cohabitate in that sense. When there's the provision is made for God to cover that, and that's what the sacrifices are all about. And so David realizes not only uh, does his sin need to be erased, and he needs to have the stain removed, but he cannot really enter into fellowship with God. He cannot enter into sacred space in God's presence because this has defiled him. And again, Whatever's unclean, whatever defiles, whatever's unholy, all that was taken care of through the rituals and the sacrifices. And, and the Jewish person would understand that. Verse 3 brings it to the next thing that's so very important. It is confession. It says here, I acknowledge my transgression. My sin is always before me. Ooh. We have to admit and accept the truth. I think that's one of the hardest things to do because of our innate pride well if I tell the truth then everybody's going to really know that I'm not really what they think I am <laughs> well surprise surprise none of us are we're fallen and that's part of humility just like wow um, I remember a, year, a number of years ago I was driving a tractor for my brother-in-law and I was putting it away for him and, and uh, I, I bumped uh, as I come into it was very very low gutter and things going in there you can only bring the front end of the tractor in and I got just a little too close and I, I ran into it but I saw it and so I backed up and then a little later he said did, did, how did, did you fit it in there okay you didn't hit anything did you know I didn't hit anything well yeah he did but I lied to him in reality I lied to him and I was ashamed well see that's the, that's that pride we have a tendency to like wait I would I would never do anything like that Oh, that's above me. You know, we have this something there. It's not, not good. But notice here what he says about that. My sin is always before me. Is, is that not what I'm talking about when it's, you know, the guilt conscience? This, when he's talking about um, sin here, my sin is ever, he's talking about the act. That's what's implied there. And unbelievably so, certain things get burned into our memory you know, I, I've had dreams. I, I wake up. I mean, this is, I got saved when I was 18, but I did some kooky stuff in high school. We had a crazy bunch of guys that ran around. We did some stuff that we should not have done. Well, as a result of doing dumb stuff and sinning, it scarred my mind. So I've got, they're there. Those pictures, those acts. Oh, this shame. 
It's almost, if you dwell on that, it takes you right back to the same type of shame that you felt. And this is what I'm talking about here. And I think this is what he's talking about. Sin is always before me. But you know what? God's grace, God's love can just erase that. He can heal and he can cause you to forget. So when they, fl- they're flashes usually. I don't dwell on them. They're flashes. But this is why it's so important to avoid sin. Who wants flashbacks in that, of that nature? Not, not I, right? And, and again, notice here he says in verse 4, against you and you only. He, he, he is taking the message that he received from Nathan and he's owning it. Against you and you only have I sinned. Whew, wow. Well, that, hold on, David. You, you sinned against Uriah. You know, I've, of course, our minds work kind of funny sometimes. Could you imagine what that was like when David died and he entered into eternity and he meets with Uriah? I wonder how this is going to be on the other side for the people that love the Lord, you love the Lord, we're all forgiven, but you get on the other side and you realize, you know, like in this case, I killed you. You killed me, bro. (laughs) How does that work, right? Sorry I brought that up. (laughs) Against God only, and done this evil in your sight. So I think we kind of realize my sin is just as bad as the next guy, so we just, it's okay, we're both here, we're good, we're forgiven. Something like that, right? Now, when it comes to sin, there's another point here that's important. We have a way of, and this is what Satan would have us to do. Actually, it's God's fault. He made me this way. Notice he says here, uh, that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. So we have, a, you know, this is sort of like our fallback position. Well, you know, we're just human, and God knows that. And and so and it, we don't realize when we make those kind of statements, we're kind of like skirting the guilt, like we're really not that bad. And and actually, if God wouldn't have made me this way, I wouldn't have done that. You see how we can kind of blame God for, for sin? But that's what David's not doing. God's always right. I'm always wrong. You know, whenever God addresses me and he convicts me, guess who's right and who's wrong? It's not a hard one to figure out. I'm always the one that's wrong. God is never wrong. He is just. And then it says he's blameless. God doesn't need to do anything to become morally clean or acceptable. That's who he is. Everything about God and everything that he does is sacred. It's beautiful. It's holy. He doesn't have to do anything to change. He is perfect, but I'm, I'm counter to that. He has no part in my sin. It was my choice and my failure. Sin is always the choice of a free moral agent. And God gave us that ability to choose. Verse 5 talks about our problem. And this is original sin. I was brought forth in iniquity. And in sin, my mother conceived me. And behold, you desire truth in the inward parts. And in the hidden part, you will make me to know wisdom. So, uh, again, just understanding. And it really comes to, 
to us that we should understand the evilness of evil. Sin is not something to play with. It is deceitful. It will deceive you. It will destroy you. And Satan knows that. So he tempts us to lead us in that direction because he knows it will harden our hearts. It will blind us. It will do all kinds of damage to us. And so there has to be a self-evaluation. Look, I am lost. I am fallen. I am a sinner that needs to be saved. God's provided a sacrifice for that sin. So self-evaluation is very important. If I'm going to make any progress, I have to have a true evaluation of self. And so he says here, the inward parts. Truth in the inward parts. That would be the soul and the spirit. Now, theres I don't think it's worth <clears throat> spending a lot of time on, but there's people who, who see us as trichotomous, if you will, uh, being body, soul, and spirit. And there are others that see us dichotomous, that we're body, and our soul and spirit are sort of one. You really can't separate the two. And it's really, I think, I don't know that we can, but I think God can. I mean, that's what Hebrews tells us. You know, the division between soul and spirit, that's what the truth does, the sword of the spirit, the word of God. And this is how we deal with the fallen man. There has to be truth. There's nothing else. That's why the world really can't help you. When I listen to these doctors talk about the cures and the things and the development, well, you know, thousands and thousands of years ago, we actually needed viruses because actually the virus helped create the IA. I'm done listening to you. You're a fool. You are ignorant. You have no idea what you're talking about. If you don't understand that, why should I even bother listening to you? Because I think your other information might be just as tainted, right? It's truth. We have to have truth. Because truth is firm. Truth is faithful. It's always the same. It's an absolute with God. And then he talks about wisdom in the hidden part. Again, he's not talking about the outward. He's talking about what's going on inside a person. And so what is wisdom? It's the ability of the heart to direct the mind to a correct understanding. It is also the proper use of, of knowledge. And so God wants to direct that within us. And David understood that. He goes on uh, in verse 7 here, and he, he gets to the application of grace and truth. So some people who, who see God as being different in the Old Testament versus the New Testament, I want to encourage you, please read the Old Testament again. Because he is incredibly gracious. He's incredibly merciful. I mean, this is an illustration. How, this is Jesus in the New Testament right here. How can you miss it? Go, you know, to the, to the, I don't know where the man was at, but to the woman caught in adultery. Both of those guys should have been stoned, but they only brought the woman. I mean, the hypocrites, that's what they only act on. What, you know, I wonder which one of the priests it was, right? Who knows? What do you, you know, go and sin no more. I mean, God would have had every right to have David executed. He should have been executed. He's a king, it doesn't matter. Truth is truth, right is right. Sin is sin. But God was merciful. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be killing. That's what the blood was applied with, right? Remember they took the hyssop, the little uh, weed type plant, dipped it in the basin and strike the lintel in the, you know, the doorpost. Purge me. 
with, with hyssop. Apply the blood. What, what do we mean purge? What, well, you know, John's a diesel mechanic. What do you, one of the things you have to do to a diesel engine after you get done working on it is purge it. You got to deal with it. You got to get, get all the air out of the lines and, and get it towards just a pure f- fuel mixture. And that's what we're talking about. You're getting rid of the unwanted stuff. Purge me. Get rid of it. And then he says again, wash me. And this is the idea here of removing the stain. This is the effect of sin. This is the effect of wrongdoing. It stains us. And then he gets to the part that we enjoy, uh, want again, and that's joy. That's verse 8. Make me hear joy and gladness. So what happens? Sin has pleasure for a season, right? But then that season's normally quite short-lived. Sometimes minutes, sometimes hours, maybe days. But soon the effects of guilt set in. And what is one of the first things to leave when guilt enters is joy. So I used to have this little conversation with myself on occasion when I'm driving down the road. Why am I not happy? Where's my joy? I should be joyful. Why am I not? What am I, what's, what, what's going on? And I start to have, used to have these little conversations with myself. And I'd find out, I'd do some introspection, the inward parts, okay. And then the Holy Spirit would just, oh, I need to, I need to, I'm carrying something I shouldn't be carrying. And so you deal with that. And that's, that's what it means to walk with the Lord. You, we should be, the, Christians should be the most joyful Glad people, there should be a smile on our faces continually. I just think that's the general flow of your life should be one of joy. You know, you have not because, if you, do you have joy in your life? Do you want joy? Do you want to be happy? Yeah, I'm, I'm signing up for that. No, no, I like being somber. <laughs> I like being sad. <laughs> Nobody does, right? Verse 9, this is... Um, Hide your face from my sins. Blot out my iniquities. I think, to me, that's re- what happens when we sin, just like I confessed you know, my little lie. The shame. That's why we would not want to confess it, because we have shame in admitting the truth. And so he sort of hints to that. Hide your face from my sin. Lord, don't look at my sins. You know, hide them. Remove them. You know, that whole thing he's been working towards. Rather, verse 10, create in me a clean heart. So here he's getting to the inner man now, and he's really con- creating me a clean heart. This is to bring into existence something that has not been in existence. I've had a defiled heart. I've had a lying heart. I've had a deceitful heart. I need a new heart. Create in me a clean heart. Renew a steadfast spirit. So that's refresh. Give me new life, Lord. This is some, these, these are like daily prayers, right? Every day. Because we live in a fallen, with a fallen nature. You know, Paul described this perfectly in Romans. When he cried out, you can almost sense the intensity in his writing. Who's going to loose me from this dead man? Now, he's, in, he's writing this with the thought of what they would do to prisoners. 
is they would throw them in a hole, dungeon, and they would attach a dead body to them. So you know what's going to happen over time. You're alive and you're attached to a dead body and what's going to happen to that dead body? It's going to get nasty and then eventually it's going to infect you. That's how he's looking at the fallen nature when he's writing this. Who's going to loose me from this dead man? That fallen carcass. It's, there's no hope for it. In fact, Peter says it grows corrupt. Oh, you know, I know once I hit 60 or 70, I won't have to, be, I won't have to fight sin anymore. Yeah. If you thought that when you were 20 and you're now older, you realize that's not true. <laughs> You fight it from crib to the grave. It's just what we got to deal with. But God has, we can't loose ourselves, but God can loose us from that dead man by creating in us a clean heart and renewing a steadfast spirit within us. God can create something out of nothing as long as we present it to him. And then we're privileged. You know, he says in verse 11, do not cast away from me, do not cast me away from your presence. Do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Because this is what happens. When we sin, we do not break relationship. This is a very important, very basic foundational truth that all Christians should know. Sin does not break relationship. David was not removed from the kingdom. He did not lose his salvation Salvation was not denied from David because he sinned. What was broken was his fellowship, his relationship with God and his intimacy with God and walking with God was separated. And this is important to understand. We don't relate to God on a performance basis or else we would never have a relationship with him. We relate to God on the basis of faith through the sacrifice and the blood atonement. We are clean through the blood of Christ. We're forgiven. We're, we're His righteousness is put on our account. But as important as we walk through life to, to deal with sin in an, in an applicational way, when we do cross the line, if I am not hearing God's voice, sensing God's presence, getting direction from God, it's not God's fault. There's something, what is the barrier what is not there or what is there that's in the way of me hearing? Sometimes it's just I'm not praying and I'm not asking. And I think that's what David is doing here. Cast me not away. Lord, draw me in. I, I'm, I feel this separation because of my sin and my guilt. I, but I don't want that. Tell God that you don't want that. David is doing that. Don't take your spirit from me. You know, the gifts and the blessings. You realize that through sin there's a possibility of forfeiting that. The blessing. What is, what, what are we talking about when we say presence of God? Like if you guys are here and what do I see? I see your face. That's what the presence is. We're seeing the face of God. We're face-to-face encounter, not with our physical eye, but in our spirit. How does God communicate with us? 
He communicates to us through our spirit, which that doesn't always need words. There's an impression there. There's, you know, when we're all gathered and there's an intense love and in our worship towards him, he's, you can sense that presence. I mean, like Sunday morning here, wasn't it powerful? It's like, whoa, there's something. It's, it's indescribable, and it's overwhelmingly powerful. And for people who don't sense that, there's a problem there. Something's, what is that? It has to be dealt with. There's nothing more, should not be, there's nothing more important than this in our lives. There should be this way. Is seeking and sensing the presence of God and the filling of his Holy Spirit. We want this face-to-face encounter. As a result of that in verse 12, as we finish up here, there's a restoration of the joy. That's the only way it's going to be restored, is in the presence of God. And then I love what he says at the end of verse 12, uphold me by your generous spirit. It's talking about being sustained. That is, that is the only way that you and I are going to make it. It is the abiding presence of the Holy Spirit that gives us the fortitude to persevere and keep going, enduring the endurance needed, the sustaining power of God's presence. Refresh and give new life to me so that I can be, in a sense, unwavering. That's really what a steadfast spirit is. I am committed. I just love people who say what they're going to do and then they execute. That's what faithfulness is. That's what an unwavering spirit is. Verse 13, uh, I think this would um, begin... uh, to enter into the last phase of what happens when there's restoration has reached its fullness and forgiveness is taken. It's, it's the fruit of forgiveness and the effect of restoration is worship. I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will be converted to you. There is, an, there is a concern and a care for those outside the realm of faith. Evangelism com- becomes renewed in our lives. 15 through 17, he says, open my lips and my mouth shall show forth your praise. So your heart's been changed. Your heart, your inner man's been renewed. God's spirit is just working praise. You you, you realize that the guilt is gone. The effect, the, the bad decision I made it's blotted out. I'm no longer in a position of rejection as a word from God, but I'm accepted. And there's praise and worship and expression of gratitude towards him. Open my lips. <laughs> oh. Open my lips. Wow. Because I have a changed heart. And then, this is what God loves. You know, he, he talked about the sacrifices um, of God in verse 16 um, do not uh, you don't desire sacrifice or I'd give it for you delight you don't delight in burnt offerings but what does he delight in sacrifices of a broken spirit a broken and a contrite heart God doesn't despise that God loves that 
And so that is what happens. And, and, and so you understand that the sac- you know, God isn't like, oh, bloodthirsty, I need these sacrifices. That's not at all. It's a way of you know, symbolically transferring all that guilt in the Old Testament, right? But there's a, I mean, I don't know how that would have affected me personally. I don't, you've know, given it much thought, but to lay your hands on a, on a, a one-year-old calf, which is really cute, and uh, this is, in this case, unblemished, and then have your hand on that, and then, you know, the, the priest slitting the throat, catching the blood, and, and then just, set, as you have your hand on that, which is transferring your sin, and the, the, to, to have, watch the life drain out of that animal and realize that should have been me. Whew. I mean, that, how, what kind of an impression? You know, I, broken spirit. Now, we can get broken in different ways, but uh, just realizing that without God's forgiveness, without his restoration, there's no hope. There's got to be a, a, an understanding uh, of that impossibleness for me to reach that level of inter- um, relationship that he desires. I, I'm not, I need him to lift me up to that. And when I realize I don't have it within, then that's when the brokenness is created. I can't do this, Lord. And he will say, I know that. I'm here to help you. A broken spirit, a broken heart, and a contrite heart. Those minor prophets, you know, who is the Lord near? Those who are of a broken and contrite heart, who tremble at my word. See, that's the fear of the Lord. That's what's missing in the generally missing in the church today is the fear of the Lord. I mean, you know, just like David sinned right in front of God's face, we can sin, we can do the same. Sin right in front of him. And it should bring us to a place of brokenness as it did David. He was broken. He realized it. And then he ends with a short little prayer here. Do good in your good pleasure to Zion. Build the walls. Then you shall be pleased with the sacrifices of righteousness. With burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings, they shall, be, they shall offer bulls on your altar. So you see that there is a place for that kind of sacrifice. It was there in the Old Testament. But it, God wasn't as focused on the, the animal as he was the offerer. The worshiper. That's what God was looking at. That's what the focus was. And if the person wasn't sincere and he wasn't doing that out of faith, it didn't count for much. But when it did, it was well-pleasing to God. As it says, it came up before God as a sweet-smelling savior. It's like, yes, they get it. They understand it. Now, one of the things and privileges we have is we don't have to, we're not a slaughterhouse, right? And not only is all sin forgiven in Jesus, but also the sins of adultery. The ones that had no sacrifice. But now in the New Testament, every sin, except one. There's only one sin. And that is to reject the offer 
of salvation. There is salvation in no other. To reject God's Lamb of God and the sacrifice of Christ, there is no other sacrifice. All other sins can be forgiven by the, of the sons of men, but not the rejection. Lord, we just thank you for your word. I know David probably wishes 